Alrighty, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Modern Mobile Oil Field. Now, if you're watching on YouTube, you probably have an idea of what today's topic is, but if you're listening in podcast format, consider subscribing to the channel. Not only is it just as entertaining as those random sports videos or meme compilations, but it's going to help you grow as well. But enough of chilling the channel. I can't keep our guests waiting. Ladies and gentlemen, again, we are joined by the king, the Elvis Presley of oil and gas tech, Jeffrey Can. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks very much. First time I've been compared to Elvis Presley, I have to say. <laughs> hey, hopefully not the last. Like I've said time and time again, the series is wonderful. It's only going to continue to get better. That's no secret, but this series will never replace this here book, the Bible of oil and gas tech, bits, bytes, and barrels. You can pick yourself up a copy for $10, wildly enhance your understanding of the industry in more ways than you would know. But I think we've done enough introductions, so let's jump right into today's topic, artificial intelligence. Now, Jeffrey, with AI, can I expect an iRobot remake with Will Smith and the North Sea on a floating platform? Eventually. <laughs> Eventually. <laughs> How can yeah, you subs- not- no, no, it won't be for it won't be for a long time, unfortunately. But but uh, yeah, that's uh, the trajectory. The uh, trend line is very clear. It's where this technology soon, is headed. Soon. Now, how could you succinctly describe AI and its applications? Is it more than just asking Siri to add something to my grocery list? I, I would hope it's far deeper than that. <laughs> well, the, the definition of artificial intelligence uh, is a is it's a complicated one uh, because it covers such a, a vast range of of related and similar technologies. Uh, the, the, the simplest explanation uh, for me is uh, one where uh, we, we take an extension of what we mean by intelligence. In other words, the, the characteristics that make us humans or beings beings. In other words, a, a series of senses that are uh, not at the moment uh, easily amenable to replacement, hearing, uh, visual, uh, sound, taste, sense of smell, and so forth. We have... Uh, develop lots of sensor technology that can uh, enhance or support those different human senses. But the ability to take in something through your eyes, uh, I, if you like, a, if you think of your your head as a movie camera and you're you're taking in through your eyes the 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 lens, the vi- the visuals of what's happening in front of you, the ability to interpret that in an instant, make a decision around what to do, if anything, and then take that action is an inherently uh, human characteristic. Machines can't do that uh, easily. And uh, the same thing with uh, language processing. I'm, I'm speaking in, in English, you're listening to it, and your brain is automatically translating the sounds into words, the words into meaning, uh, the meaning into uh, understanding. All of that happens in an instant. And that uh, kind of intelligence to be able to do things like language processing, visual data interpretation, it, it falls into this category of technologies called artificial intelligence. If intelligence is the ability to process that data, artificial intelligence is the uh, machine that can uh, replicate or, or perform much of the same uh, characteristics. All right. So certainly a very promising technology. But through your research, what advantages and disadvantages have you seen in everyday or even oil and gas applications? Well, there, there, there's so many use cases for uh, this kind of intelligence uh, tool set in, in oil and gas. It's almost hard to describe where to begin. But uh, as, as one of my, uh, one of my uh, network contacts has, has explained to me, 
any job today that involves a human being staring at a dial, staring at a readout, and, and, uh, and making a decision whether to turn or not turn a dial, uh, that job is amenable to be replaced by something that is artificially intelligent and, and doing the same job. So the advantages are, are enormous. Uh, just visiting well sites where there's a requirement to uh, inspect, uh, look at the gauges, uh, capture the data that, that's there and make a decision around whether or not to uh, schedule an asset for maintenance or to wind, uh, turn down or turn up a, a producing asset, a pump for instance or whether to uh, plan for an inspection for corrosion. All are kind of uh, a, a decision-making process that re it requires informed intelligence. And those, all of those jobs uh, are at, at, uh, at amenable to the use of this technology. So the advantage is uh, the significant automation of, of much of this infrastructure, which as we know is very, uh, very susceptible to human error and, and human um, um, omissions and oversights. So the advantages are, uh, efficiency, cost imp improvements, productivity, asset utilization, all, all improve. The disadvantages are that if you feed these engines incorrect data, they will make an incorrect decision. And uh, so therefore the, the kind of data that you feed them uh, is important. They, they work better the more data you give them. And so these engines require enormous quantities of data and, and uh, that data might not be e easily amenable to computerization, such as on paper documents or, and whatnot. Um, and, uh, and then finally, uh, the biggest uh, disadvantage is more perceptive than anything, but at a time when many organizations and, and we're, you know, we're all struggling in this uh, uh, current pandemic setting uh, with jobs and job losses and unemployment, uh, using this kind of technology to further <laughs> remove jobs uh, is alarming for many people. Uh, so that's its disadvantage is more of a change management question than and a perception question, mm -hmm. uh, in my view. But oh, those right. are, I guess gives you a bit of the balance of the pros and the cons. Yeah, it seems pretty equally balanced so far. And perhaps this is beyond the scope of what the current capabilities are. But how can we further improve it to uh, mimic, I guess, human rational decision making? Because like you said, my eyes are seeing, I'm hearing, I'm tasting, I'm touching. Subconsciously, mm -hmm. my mind is filtering a ton of that data and information. And then I'm processing that. Is it just a matter of time and better sensors and better chips? Uh, that's exactly right. Uh, in, uh, in, in my book, I articulate this uh, little uh, illustration of this uh, phenomenon. You know, the, the, the reason the Wright brothers' aircrafts were able to get off the ground. I mean, humans knew all about how flight worked for, for centuries before the Wright brothers came along. But how did they get their aircraft off the ground? They had a fuel dense enough. Uh, that could draw, create enough energy when you burnt it, uh, um, in, in this case, fuel, gasoline, uh, that you could spin a propeller and the propeller had enough lift to get the aircraft off the ground. The, the, the analogy is exactly the same in, in the world of cloud computing, big data, and analytics. That we now have enough accumulated data, analytic horsepower distributed by cloud computing, that we have, in effect, a, enough information density in the same way that the Wright brothers had fuel density, we have information density in, in, in place, available and accessible that we can process at very, very uh, fast speeds that we now can do things that we couldn't do before, including using artificial intelligence to do stuff like language interpretation and, and uh, translation and, and sight visualization interpretation. That's, the, uh, that's where we, why we're at this, this cusp of the uh, role of artificial intelligence uh, really, really taking off. And then AI has been around in sci-fi for a long time and even reality for a little bit. So what are some entertaining, maybe fun uses that have existed or are being developed that people may not know about? 
Well, there's there's lots of examples of it. A fun one that is uh, uh, you can try out on your phone if you want is uh, called uh, Google Quick Draw. Uh, so Quick Draw is a uh, uh, an application where you, you, you just start tracing out with your finger uh, on your phone and Google will guess what you're drawing. And it's, it's uncanny how fast it is uh, at uh, being able to interpret um, as some, some as you start drawing, it's, it immediately starts guessing. So if you start drawing a, a, a circle, Google Quick Draw will quickly say, well, you're drawing a circle, a tomato, a watermelon. And if you start just adding a little bumps across the top, it'll immediately go, oh, it's a blueberry. <laughs> and so it's very quick. It's like super fast. And uh, so it's a great, I use it in, in uh, when I do lectures and so forth. I just get people to pull your phone out and just, just for fun. And what you're doing is you're training an artificial intelligence engine right at, in the moment to be able to interpret uh, finger doodlings on, on your screen phone uh, to uh, inform this artificial intelligence engine. We're doing it all the time. We just don't, as we, I mean, big businesses have this stuff working in the background and we just don't see it or have much appreciation for it because it is, it's largely a background activity for, for, for big business. We don't get to see, we don't get to front up against it too often. What a wild and promising technology. Now, uh, in the graph in your book, you have AI tied for first, actually, with cloud computing for largest impacts on the industry, but the only reason it lags comparatively, the other access it's not nearly as mature. So how long has AI been in the oil and gas industry and what utilizations have people made with it? I can't, I couldn't forecast how far or how long it's been in the industry, but a very long time for sure. Artificial intelligence came around literally the instant we uh, uh, humans developed computers. The question was very quickly asked because people could, could see the pathway forward. At what point would a machine be able to uh, impersonate a human sufficiently that you would not know you're dealing with a uh, um, a non-human, like a machine? So that dates back to the 1950s. So it's been around for a very, very long time. In oil and gas, I'm sure there are lots of examples I'm, I'm unfamiliar with, but uh, everything from weather forecasting, for instance, uses artificial intelligence. Uh, in the uh, use case I've described in my book, which is a, a, a earliest one, which I, I would say has been published and studied, uh, involves a petroleum company in Australia who fed all of their historic engineering content into an artificial intelligence engine so that the engineers could ask in English uh, for a document that they were looking for using all of the sketchy terms we humans use for trying to describe something we can't quite characterize. And uh, the AI engine uh, sorts through these millions and millions and millions of pages of documents and finds the, the document that the engineer is, is looking for. And the question they're asking, the, the way they, they search for it isn't, it isn't Google where you're, you're typing in a bunch of search terms and hoping Google can find it. You're talking to the machine in English and uh, the machine is listening, interpreting, and then searching for the, the, the content that you're after. It's pretty impressive when you, when you see it in action, actually. And then I have to say, I'm a little curious to hear how independent this te technology is, because it's cool to think that I can just speak to it and it can parse through some language libraries and figure it out. Yeah. But does it have the capability right now to execute everything by itself, or does it kind of need some human peeking over its shoulder to make sure it's doing everything correctly? Well, there are many illustrations of, of these technologies where uh, it's sufficiently advanced. There's no real requirement for a human looking over its shoulder. And uh, a really good example of this is uh, aerial drone technology for flying a drone. Uh, aircraft today, we, we humans are innately uncomfortable getting into 
uh, an unmanned uh, transportation vehicle of any kind. It doesn't matter whether it's a boat or a car or a helicopter or an airplane. It doesn't matter. But uh, the reality is that these engines are now sufficiently sophisticated that the idea of a pilot is largely superfluous. We, we don't need pilots in aircraft. We, we, the, the engines are sufficiently smart that they can actually take off and land and pilot the aircraft in virtually any condition. Military technology is taking care of that. But we, we're uncomfortable with it. And this also helps explain the, the slow pace of adoption of things like uh, automated cars and automated trucks. But there are some, the, those technologies are advancing very, very quickly. And it won't, the day won't be too far off where there are unmanned trucks hauling goods around on our, on our highways because the, the technology is available to do so. It's cheaper, faster, safer, more fuel efficient. And, uh, it, it, but, uh, you know, for things like aircraft, I think we're going to be, it'll be a very long time before people get really comfortable with, oh, I'm going to take a, a flight to, from New York to Los Angeles and there's no pilot in the plane. <laughs> we will, no, that, we will really struggle with that for a while. Yeah, that will, I mean, it's a matter of time with the trucks, of course, but I can see, I know so many people who would never be comfortable with flying an unmanned aircraft. But, yeah, or, or more, more likely for most of us, um, because even if flights are, uh, if you look at the whole of human population, it's a tiny portion of us actually get on airplanes. Mm-hmm. We do it a lot, but, but not that many of us. Many more of us, though, get on cars and buses and trains. And those are all very amenable to um, human uh, systems that operate without humans at the, at the, at the switch. Oh, easily. And then the tech Easily. industry, I mean, they seem to have no shortage of buzzwords. Even when I was in my data analytics courses or other computational classes, a lot of stuff gets thrown around, a lot of jargon that I think I'm pretty familiar with. But one that did get tossed around was the word digital twin. Does that have any ties to AI? And if so, what is it? Well, a digital twin is a virtual representation of a physical thing. In, in an industrial sense, uh, w- when we build an asset, say a gas plant or, or a well, we, uh, uh, at this, as we're constructing it, we do the design work and the construction, the, the build, and then we put it into operation. That whole process, we generate and accumulate an enormous amount of data about that, that, that physical asset. Everything from who made it and uh, where is it physically located? What's it's made of? Uh, what, what, is, what, what is its energy consumption? What's its performance envelope? How fast can it run? How slow can it run? How do we turn it on? How do we turn it off? All of this, this data is collected uh, during the, the construction and delivery of that uh, physical asset. Uh, what we have done historically is we've kept all of that data in these different silos. So there's the maintenance engineer has their review of that asset for maintenance purposes. They know its run cycles and when's it scheduled for repair and what are the spare parts that it requires. If you're the financier who's financed the asset, you're concerned about margins and costs of production and return on your capital employed and uh, the volume of of product that you're pushing through that asset. Uh, If you're the uh, capital, um, uh, the capital arm of your company and you've, you've built the asset, you're concerned about the capital cost and how long it took you to construct it, the schedule, so all of these, these different asset groups exist in their own little silos. What a digital twin does is it brings them together into a single composite model. And then once you've got it in as a model, you can then start to play with it. You can say, okay, well, I know how it's been built and I know how it's supposed to run. I understand it's economics, it's now in one model. Let me vary the inputs. Let me, let me pretend the asset's running in the cloud, like as, as a physical asset, although it's strictly virtual. 
let me vary up the customer inputs, the amounts of oil products that say are flowing through this plant, this refinery. Let me vary the demand profile of who wants to purchase product coming out. Now, let me run that as a, as a, as a, as a virtual edition of this, this physical asset millions and millions and millions of times in the cloud. And then from there, I can under, truly understand the, the performance and characteristics of that asset under any known operating condition. That's the, I, the, the concept behind a digital twin, is that you can, you can really deeply understand uh, these assets. And there's some really great examples of people who have discovered some phenomenal things. Uh, for instance, do you erect uh, one really large windmill that uh, has super long blades, uh, but doesn't run too well when the wind is super strong? Or do you have a smaller windmill, doesn't generate as much electricity, much lower capital cost, but can work when the wind is really, really strong? How do you make that trade-off unless you can take the wind envelope, how much wind is coming at you, and, and study that at the hourly level so that you can know precisely when your big windmill is going to have to stop running because it can't, can't process the wind that's coming at it. And that's a very, very complex question. And, and right now we use really gross, um, uh, lumpy uh, <laughs> uh, averages to kind of draw that conclusion. Uh -huh. Whereas, you know, with a digital twin, we can make very, very precise calculations. Digital twins definitely hold a world of difference in the terms of maximization and optimization. So I'm excited to see where that goes. But what about big data analysis and interpretation? Sure, it can give us a bunch of data and sort of give us the best idea. But are there trends that AI can discover that just would not have been obvious to human eyes, human intelligence, because they don't have predispositions and biases? Oh, absolutely. As an example, there is a, a company in Australia uh, that has developed a natural language um, processing engine specifically for safety incident data associated with mines. Now, this is a kind of a niche area, but you can see what happens. There's an incident at the mine. The supervisor narrates into their phone. Uh, you know, Joey was at the wheel of the mine truck and at the intersection of this uh, mine road and this mine road, uh, the stop sign was, was not observed and the truck barreled through the intersection, creating an unsafe condition. No, no incidents were reported and, and Joey was spoken to. That's, there's, there's a block of text. And imagine if you had a natural language processing engine that could read that block of text, put that into a model of your mine operations and then predict when your next incident is gonna happen. That's what this company does in Australia. And that's a very, very clever use of the technology to uh, do things like expand uh, human understanding and, and, um, and apply the, uh, the, this technology to uh, concepts that, you know, right now, we, we, we can't really even begin to fathom how they could be in, uh, used by a machine. It's already blowing my mind using technology to predict the future to mitigate problems that have not even happened yet. That's insane. Yeah. And then you mentioned that AI holds massive potential to enhance, well, oil and gas exploration sector for sure, in terms of increasing reserves, capital efficiencies. But how do humans help? What needs to happen in order to organize these data lakes into usable formats for these AI machines? Can I just give it a million Excel spreadsheets and a couple other documents and expect it to learn? Or is there a little bit more facilitation necessary? It's not quite as simple as uh, giving the, these machines the, um, the piles of data and say, here, have at it. It does take some skill sets in, in areas like data science uh, to be able to uh, uh, structure the data in a fashion that the machines can take best advantage of them. So it's not, it's not for a, a blind application and blind use. It does require some, 
some smarts and some human skill set to do the design. And then in terms of the smarts required, um, I remember in high school, way back when, way back when, I, I talk as if I'm pretty old. I remember a couple years ago in high school when <laughs> there was an AI uh, web browser bot announced. It was called Cleverbot, and you could speak to it, you could type to it, and it would talk back to you. And it, when it first came out, it was fun. We would ask it questions, prompt it to do things, and you'd have these weird conversations. But in a few weeks, the website was terrible. It was rot data. People, other stupid high schoolers like myself were going, oh, how far can I push this? So I got on one day to try and talk to it. And it immediately started questioning me about things because that's how it knew to start conversations and then use the information I gave it to craft some pretty nasty insults. So maybe not <laughs> as offensive in the perspective of oil and gas technology, but is it relatively important to filter out that rot information? Of course, it's not going to be just mean things, but what does oil and gas need to prevent feeding AI before, I don't know, something bad happens. It develops garbage in and garbage out. Yeah, so ROT, of course, is, a, is an acronym, and it stands for uh, redundant, obsolete, and trivial. And, and so uh, a good uh, 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 precondition to success with an artificial intelligence application is to remove all of the, this ROT data from your, from your uh, uh, scenario. Uh, and so that it doesn't uh, doesn't influence the calculations of the of the artificial intelligence engine as it's processing. Um, the, the the use case you're referring to is a good one. It's it's where the since these natural language interpretation engines can't tell whether they're being racist or offensive. I mean, these are emotional reactions people have to uh, to, to things. Um, it's an example where it's it's. Uh, not fully intelligent because it's not applying an emotional an emotional engine to things and and then ends up insulting you. Uh, so um, if you if you carry that to uh, into the industrial world, the the issue you have is incorrect data coming into the AI engine. The engine processes it, it thinks it's uh, and uses that data to cr to create an outcome which is undesirable. And so some care has to be taken to make sure that that that's not the case. Uh, but for the most part. Uh, you know, let, 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 imagine you had a use case where you want a machine to interpret uh, land contracts, and it's uh, and so you feed it land contracts and have the machine process the land contracted uh, uh, land contract language to interpret the contracts for you and find insights. It's unlikely you're going to find racist input coming in through your land contracts, so it's not a concern uh, that that typically shows up as a as a worry in industrial setting. But certainly if you had um, land contracts which were uh, known to be uh, in violation of the law, feeding those in and then having the machine try and interpret them and, <clears throat> interpret them and present them as if they are legally binding is, would probably be a problem. So that's why you have to be, be mindful of what information you do feed the engines. And then are there people or just anyone individually developing, I guess, emotional libraries with a high enough resolution that they can mimic human emotion or do we want to mostly eliminate that from these professional settings these business and extraction and mining settings well the, i think it's in it's, it would be impossible to uh, say to the world uh, world's um, artificial intelligence developers that uh, ai should not be applied to the task of interpreting human emotion that's just a uh, it's a nice ideal, but so I, I can't imagine uh, any situation where the, the, we would be completely uniform as a species and, uh, and, and block that development. We, we have to assume somewhere in the world people are trying to develop AI engines that can not only listen to what we say and provide an appropriate 
response based on what the engine believes is, is correct, based on the data that has been fed. And it's doing that trying to understand and, and read human emotional reaction to what it's just done. Because human, our emotional reactions, we telegraph things, right? We have our, our, our face muscles are very, very complicated. You know, raised eyebrow can, can signal many different things depending on how you, how you frame it. Uh, and so the, uh, so the engines, we have to assume the developers are working very hard to do things like uh, try and interpret and read uh, human emotions in response to what these machines are producing. And then is it reasonable to just jump in and start taking advantage? I mean, of course, you don't want to implement it immediately, but to sort of experiment with the applications before putting it into the industry? Or should you have a clear goal in mind before you try to get started on this journey at all? Well, most oil and gas in, in, uh, industrialists are extremely practical people. And uh, this, uh, the idea that there would be some sort of science project uh, that uh, you know, it doesn't have a clear profit-driven outcome <laughs> and that's going to get funded it, yeah. is pretty low. That maybe in an R&D lab in, in some, some uh, large organization, you might find that. But for the, for, for the normal oil and gas company out there or service company out there, uh, they, these problems, they, this technology should be applied to try to solve specific problems which are amenable to that type of technology. And if you're not applying the, the technology to, with that profit motive in mind, you're probably not going to be successful in, in demonstrating much of anything with, mm -hmm. with the technology. So I would, I would counsel companies at this stage, take careful aim at a specific business problem and use the technology to solve the problem. That's the fastest way to, to success and uptake. And then when implementing this stuff, let's say we do all of that successfully, is there a problem when comparing human goals with the goals of the AI? I mean, goals used loosely. Are there priorities like human safety that would not be obvious to us to even teach it that might pose threats in the future? Well, many, many uh, AI engines will be uh, driven to try to optimize to a, to a specific goal or, or, or objective that, that has been given to the engine. So if the goal or the objective is to improve safety, uh, the, the uh, AI engines will uh, be able to provide uh, guidance or interpretation of the data they're presented so that safety is absolutely maximized. If you said to the engine, though, I need you to uh, maximize profit, but I don't want you to create any safety incidents, then the machine might interpret the data differently to uh, achieve safety outcomes that you're after and achieve the profit outcome that you're after. So it's all a question of how do you, how do you get the AI engine to react to the goals or the objectives that you've set for it and the, then let it, let it run and, and let it execute. And so there's no clear answer to this. Um, uh, and so uh, many AI engines, you actually can provide it with, uh, you can say to it, okay, optimize for margin, optimize for capital cost, optimize for um, deliverability or rateability, optimize for uh, profits, optimize for safety, lower my OPEX, give me the lowest possible carbon emission um, solution to this set of uh, inputs and the engine will churn away and give you, give you an, an answer. And so safety might be one of the, one of the criteria. But I, I wouldn't always assume, unless the developers have been very clear about this, that, that uh, safety is always going to be respected. Sometimes these engines, um, they're like anything else. They will you know, work with the parameters they've been given. And, uh, and, and sometimes safety might not be the parameter they've been fed. And then I feel like at this point, as a culture, at least here in the West, we've waded through the sci-fi and finally discovered that well, it's not always out to kill us. <laughs> Very rarely is AI out to kill us. But today, is there still any pushback for the use of AI? 
If so, what can we do to convince people involved to trust the AI in their decision-making processes, like landman going through contracts, geologists through seismic data, uh, engineers doing trend analysis on their own? Will everyone be happy with the work of AI as soon as it is implemented, or are there still some people who don't want to see it? I think we need to assume that, uh, as in any area of development, it will take time to accumulate the requisite data uh, so that the AI engines can work uh, correctly. And in, in many fields of endeavor, we're still at the very, very early stages of that, that, uh, that journey that we need to be on. And throughout the journey, there will be, as there always are, there will be a whole series of people who deny that this has any, any merit. It can't possibly replace a human. The work that I'm doing is, is more art than science. It can't be delivered by a machine. People throughout human history have made that statement over and over and over again. And we've invariably been proven wrong in the long run. So the, the, uh, we, we need to assume that when we are rolling this technology out, there will be individuals who harbor a, uh, a, a concern about the, the impact the technology will have and will dismiss it, denigrate it, deny it, and, and the like. They, th that means that the role for management in an industrial setting is to set the groundwork so that the, these technologies, uh, when they arrive, uh, can be treated um, with, with uh, the appropriate level of, of respect that they deserve. And at the same time, the, the, the workers whose jobs are going to uh, be impacted are, are looked after. Uh, and frequently, that's often not the case, that tech technology is brought in and, uh, and, and the concerns of the workers are, are, are left unaddressed. And of course, that creates the change adoption challenges. And then in the future, let's say somehow, historically it's never happened, but we move past the resentment of technology replacing us. And then we yep. have AI systems who are able to take control on their own, uh, expand their networks, and then we connect them globally across borders. Is this a utopia that we want or is this way too vulnerable and a security concern for everybody at that point with a worldwide network? Uh, well, I, the, if you're thinking about the kind of the China's great wall, great firewall, if you like, uh, that, that has been put into place, um, that you're talking about the opposite. How do I create a, a porous uh, structure? Well, I, I would argue that those, those, that porosity you're talking about, cross-border um, uh, solutions, is already in place. It's just embedded in things like supply chains and industrial uh, uh, delivery systems, power grids, uh, pipeline systems, which are all trans-border, transnational, and, and all operate in the background, and we don't, we don't see them. So that's that you, you might call it that uh, utopia. <laughs> We're already there. <laughs> that's not that's not uh, something that we should fear. Uh, it's probably something we should uh, we should embrace. And 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 it's here. It's not it's not like it's uh, something that won't exist down the road. It's it's already here. Yeah, that's exciting. I'd love to see how that develops. And also, mm. I'd like to go into the ideas. Of course, we do this show for the people. So I'm a student. I'm a young professional. I'm an older professional. And I would like to get involved with AI. Should I retrain myself to be better tooled to understand this? Should I work for a company in oil and gas? Should I go straight to a data science company? Should it be outsourced? Should I work to be able to implement it from within? How do people get started? Yeah, it's it's um, and, and of course this is a, a and the answer to this question is changing constantly. Um, for example, if you it just if you if you went back just uh, three or four years. <clears throat> to work in artificial intelligence required <clears throat> a university level training in that domain so that you understood the tools and how to use them. 
But uh, one of the waves of, of change happening in the world of digital is the democratization of these technologies. And by that, I mean the technologies are turning into things that every ordinary person can use. If you think about 3D printing uh, as a concept, you know, we go back four or five years, if you wanted to experiment with 3D printing, you needed to be, you were in a university lab somewhere or you were in the back office of some large corporation. Today, any high school kid can buy a 3D printer for just a few hundred dollars. We, we watched them all whip into action making face shields uh, during the pandemic. Uh, so this technology gets democratized and the democratization of artificial intelligence is, if you imagine the complexity associated with building things like a digital twin, Imagine an easy to use interface as simple as Uber or Google that allows an ordinary person to structure the data that they wish to work with and have an artificial intelligence engine down below uh, doing, all of the, doing all of the heavy lifting. And you don't, you, you're insulated from that. That's a world that's fast approaching, fast approaching. And so for uh, someone who is in industry today, who is thinking, oh, uh, maybe my, my career is, uh, I need to shift it into AI. What you might want to think about is how do I begin to work with these democratized tools so that I can bring artificial intelligence capabilities into my world? I wouldn't, I wouldn't quit, quit a job and then go off and <laughs> study artificial intelligence. That's not, the, that's not the likely outcome that I see. I see the outcome as, uh, as a, if you're a worker in finance, you're going to get a, an inexpensive, easy-to-use, democratized set of tools to apply artificial intelligence to the world of finance that's where you might want to go and become a, a, a learn how those how to use those tools. So don't quit your day job. It'll probably come to you as job. long as you're no, willing to learn this. it. Huh? And then that idea is nice, especially if management tried to introduce it. But let's say I'm a tech officer. I want to introduce the idea of utilizing AI. Can I justify the cost right now? Are a lot of people not too keen on spending the money? Or are these expenses dwarfed these days by the solutions that it can't afford a company? Well, as, as, as with everything that is digital, it's riding on, on Moore's law, which means that uh, for every uh, unit pass, passage of time, 18 months, uh, the cost of, of AI is falling by 50% and it's getting twice as capable. Uh, so at, at some point, the, it, the cost of working with AI to uh, solve some problems uh, is no longer the question you should ask because the, the, the cost of the technology is so low. The real question is, how can you afford not to? And uh, so I, I, would, I would say to oil and gas companies, if you're not looking at this technology in some area of your business today, you're absolutely um, going to be left behind. And then how messy does the implement, implementation transition get? I imagine some of the biggest hurdles would probably be what magnitude, agility to adopt that change, uh, changing management to maybe better understand this from both an upper level and a personnel side. What are the most difficult parts? Well, it's a really good, uh, really good um, uh, question, uh, actually, because I don't think there's a, a neat and tidy answer uh, that that is applies to everyone uh, in every situ uh, every situation. Certainly, the uh, depending on what a company tries to or takes aim at, as it as it characterizes as its big problem, will 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 undoubtedly discover uh, things it hadn't anticipated that 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 are uh, not AI related, but more say data related. My, my, the data is rubbish. So if I feed rubbish data into the AI engine, I get a rubbish answer. So so that that just surfaces. I've got a big data problem. I have to actually really deal with. Uh, that's a frequent challenge that I see with organizations. 
Uh, a second uh, is inability to uh, identify where the pain is the greatest and where AI would, would actually uh, make a difference. Uh, and that varies by company and, and uh, context and situation. Uh, and then third, of course, the problem that all organizations will wrestle with is the adoption of that change, the, the introduction of this technology. Change management is a constant challenge in this industry. And then how can management, from their perspective, support the change? Because I know, like you said, historically, there are always people who almost resent this technology because they're afraid it will replace them. How do you prevent people from feeling like, they, my boss walks in and goes, Tavis, this will save you four hours a day, and it does something that I could already do at some exorbitant cost, or I don't know, I try to be angry. Yeah. How can we destroy that us versus them, that man versus machine illusion that is currently, that exists within companies? And that's, that's very much the mission of management is to be able to explain to the workforce in clear terms um, why this is why the the, uh, the technology is going to be used, what outcome it's going to serve, and uh, what's in it for the employee, and and, and frequently this is the the uh, a secondary of, uh, and or if not tertiary uh, comment from management, and so the uh, my argument to management is this: if you're not clearly setting the groundwork and clearly explaining to your workforce why you're doing this. Uh, then you should expect a lot of confusion and, and resistance and slow uptake and excuses and backsliding and so on. It's not a, that's, that should come as absolutely no surprise. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is much less about the technology and it's as much more about how you uh, communicate it to the workforce and, and create the conditions for the change to take place. So you really have to frame it more as a tool than just simply competition that's replacing their hard work. Oh, completely. If you, if you start out a, uh, employees are very tuned to this, right? If you, if you start, if your change message to your employees is, uh, this is going to allow us to do more with less, that's just code for one of you is going to be fired, <laughs> right? We, yeah. we don't know which one, it's but if we're able to do more with less, there's, there's, there's a couple of ways to think about that. One is uh, there is no more to be done. So I, so if I haven't added more on the the le somebody somewhere, I'm because I don't have the the need for extra people. Somebody somewhere is going to go. So that's a, that's a problem message. Like how does that how does that resonate? Mm -hmm. So in in the same way, if you if your agenda is I'm going to do more with less, you also need to say and here's what more I'm going to do, so that the employees who are saying okay, well uh, that's a really attractive proposition. I, I'm quite keen to do that. You're going to grow the company or add new products embrace new markets. I can get behind that. I can see future for myself, an opportunity. I can, I can embrace this. But a simple more for less with, where you don't articulate the more, <laughs> the, the employees all figure this out oh. super quick. One of us is going to have to go. <laughs> and then what is the best way to standardize the data implementation once everyone's on board with going with it? I mean, right now you go to any repository data lake, you've got 50 years of scanned documents. You've got boxes mm -hmm. in the back that are unscanned and handwritten. You've got millions of Excel spreadsheets, other PDFs. How do we centralize it and normalize it so that we can push it into an AI system so it can parse? Or does it not really need that much help anymore? Well, it's a couple of things. Uh, one is I, I don't think uh, boiling the ocean is really the answer here, where you have all of this data in all these different formats, and, and therefore you, know, you, you embark on this monster project to load it all into some, some environment. Uh, I don't think that's how... Uh, industry will embrace uh, this. It's it's not very practical. A much more practical answer is you identify the problem where you believe 
better quality interpretation of existing data can yield a better outcome. And you, you move that data into a, a position where you can start to process it, a data lake or a, a data repository set or what have you. Um, the the I, I think that's where that's where this that's where this goes as a as a as a kind of a first step. Uh, now the second uh, uh, turn to that though is even even if you've identified this is the problem area I think I can solve and this is the data sets that I think contribute to this. There is another I concept which is well why don't you apply artificial intelligence tools to the raw data so that you can identify which ones are outliers, which ones make no sense, which ones are clearly errors. So use AI tools to actually clean up your data, to feed your AI engine, to interpret the data correctly. That might be a, you know, a, a solution to, to, to explore um, rather than uh, taking your senior engineers, who are the only ones who really understand the data, and pulling them off engineering jobs, which they love, and putting them onto working with cleaning up data, which is dull and they hate. Yeah. You use AI engines to solve that problem for you. So definitely specialized solutions over just yeah. the magnitude of, hey, find some patterns, machine. <laughs> <laughs> and exactly. that technology seems like a game changer. And it's like we've mentioned a few times, it is only a matter of time before it's a standard, really. So exactly. how can our excellent audience members, I'm going to go through a few different tiers, how can they learn to better prepare themselves? So C-level people, what can they do to understand and implement AI? Well, at the, uh, at that, <clears throat> excuse me, at that executive level, the, the, uh, this, this is a, a, a unlikely that that audience would ever uh, find themselves, you know, hands-on with these uh, kinds of technologies. So the, the, real, the real requirement at that level is to, uh, learn the range of the capability set that this technology represents so they can start to situate it in, into context and uh, and then to use the the their insights from the domain that they happen to be specialists in you know if you're an oil and in oil industry executive you worked in the industry for 30 40 years now you're presented with this novel uh, technology that, that your your job is to forecast how you think this might change the industry uh, your company and then figure out strategically how do you how do you uh, change uh, alter your roadmap your 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 agenda so that you're taking full advantage and not sideswiped by this. Mm -hmm. That's the role of the at the C-suite level. All right, and then I imagine management is probably the conduit to communicate that that embrace change down to technical and field personnel. And what else do they have to do? Well, their main job is 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 the communications aspect of it. But for managers, uh, you know, they who are who are are tasked with the you know day to day delivery of results and execution, and uh, they're certainly one of their uh, tasks will be to uh, identify where this technology is going to have the greatest impact, uh, mobilize the people and the resources and the money and the time to go and and go after this align this initiative up with all of their other initiatives that they've got underway so that it, it, it fits and it's, it, it, gets, it gets, can be explained and is, is makes sense. And then to supervise its execution to make sure that the, the results actually show up. Like a big, a big problem with many of these technologies is that the team that builds them is, and, and for, for business is often not the team that's going to use them. So management is like the communications engine that bridges the gap between the, the delivery side of this change and, and, the, and the, the end user side. Mm -hmm. That's a key role for them is to make sure that that alignment stays intact. And then I'm almost afraid to ask about the technical and field personnel because I imagine senior engineers, they will be given the tools, they will learn how to use them and they will be using them. But 
let's say me, young guy in the company, do I have to look over my shoulder to make sure I'm not going to get chopped? Because like you said, more with less is a good way to phrase it, but it is a fact of the matter that AI is going to replace a bunch of human capability. Yeah, yeah. The, the, I think for the, for the frontline worker, if you are... Uh, or if you discover that there is the potential for an, uh, this kind of technology to come into your world, and you, you've got some choices to make, and and one of those choices is uh, I'm I'm going to be um, I'm going to be part of the solution here, and I'm going to help figure out how this works, and I'm going to do do my job to train the machine, uh, and uh, and play that role. Uh, that's one that's one choice that you could make. Another choice you could make is over my dead body, <laughs> I'm not coming into my range. Uh -huh. um, and uh, another another uh, option is, uh, you know, if you're particular, if you're a senior, very senior person, you're close to retirement, is I'll just I'll just delay this. Like the, I, I don't want to deal with this. Uh, I, I got other, I, I just want to get through this and, and get through to my maximum pension position. Um, so people, you know, depending on the situation, they got choices to make. And there isn't a there isn't a nice, neat, and tidy answer here. My my advice to people, though, uh, is is that the the, uh, the pace that these technologies develop and the competitive world that we live in uh, suggests that the the most uh, likely and successful course of action is to figure out how do you embrace this and help help it work in your in your world, and and that's that's a stance that is very hard to take if you. If you do not sense that management has your back and they're going to support you, you got your get out of jail card when things go sideways. If you don't have that, that's a very hard position to take. And with all the emotion you've described, I almost wish AI would take off and just replace everybody because, like you said, a lot of pushback, a lot of resentment, a lot of delay if you're close to retirement. It makes you wonder how much we're limiting ourselves. But something else limiting ourselves. I think the time for this episode, it's drawn out. It's come to a close. I believe we've talked about everything. So again, thank you, Jeffrey. And for those of you out here listening, great information on this podcast, right? Well, it's not going to be as good as what you can find in this book. 10 bucks. That is cheaper than probably your breakfast if you were to go out to a restaurant. I don't know where you live, but at least here it is. And this is going to be supplementary knowledge that will stay with you forever. So Jeffrey, thank you again. Is there anything else you would like to say? I, well, I, I certainly hope uh, that if people are interested in this uh, topic, they'll uh, uh, purchase the, uh, the book and uh, give it a read. It's also available on audio format on Audible. So if you want to listen to it, on, um, then that's an, another, uh, another way to consume it. And then last but not least, um, I've uh, converted the book into a uh, one-day series of little lectures, which is available on Udemy. And if people were interested in taking the um, get, get it, getting the insights of the book, but delivered in a in a in a presentation uh, format, uh, then Udemy might be an, an, a third way to uh, to get the same concepts. You hear that, everybody? You have plenty of avenues to pursue this, and it sounds like plenty. you're running out of excuses to not have taken advantage of this information. So, like you said, take the course, pick up the book, listen to the book, whatever. Just stay with the times. Don't get left behind because this is the new industry. So thank you again for joining us. Thank you, Jeffrey, for joining us on the show as well. And until we see you next time, everybody, take care. Bye for now.